Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Togamar. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the Colson peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akid and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is, the principal city. Mitzrayim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lahabam, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from uh, whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Geza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, and Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Misha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. From these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Lots of names. As you could tell, I stumbled on a few. It's hard when you get to, when some of these, when they're hyphenated, you know, when they, they hyphenate it to fit it on the next line and you're trying to figure out how to say it. Um, that's one thing I like about, one of the things the, the old King James did was it would actually break it down into syllables so you can sort of sound it out. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway, there you have it. Uh, Genesis chapter 10. It's a bunch of names um, that were descended from the sons of Noah. Um, as we're going to look at this tonight, you're going to see there's an emphasis on the sons of Ham. He has the biggest portion of this passage from verse 6 through verse 20. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, it begins with, the son, uh, with Japheth and ends with Shem which is kind of weird because it's kind of like a reversing of the order. We often hear the names given as Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but the order of Genesis 10 is Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Uh, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. I'm even having problems saying the names. Um, And actually, I think the birth order really should be 
Shem, Japheth, and Ham, because Ham is considered to be the youngest. There's, there's a question about that. Yeah, it's, uh, depending on the translation, um, some will say he's the brother of Japheth, and that Shem is the elder. Um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, just a background, or, or I should say a kind of a recap from last time, since it's been a month, uh, and really more of just a recap um, of the previous section, because we were, the last section we looked at began in Genesis 6, verse 9. Uh, there we saw the genealogy of Noah. You remember again that phrase, this is the genealogy, these are the generations, this is the book of the generations. Uh, it's that Hebrew word, toledot, which marks the next stage, the next chapter, the next um, part of Genesis. Um, so Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 says, this is the genealogy, or these are the generations of Noah. And then from Genesis 6, 9, all the way to the end of chapter 9, it's Noah's story. It's the story of the flood. It's the story of how um, what was there before the flood, the world that existed after the fall, before the flood, you know, and then through the flood, and then after the aftermath of that, and how the world, because of the fall, got uh, totally corrupt, was filled with wickedness, was filled with violence. God pronounced judgment, preserved Noah through it all. We saw the whole story of the flood, how Noah was preserved on the ark for um, 150 days, including the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, uh, how uh, God uh, caused the waters to recede, how Noah found, you know, the, the ark um, landed, and how, you know, God then calls Noah off the ark, and we saw, if you remember last time, Noah blesses the Lord. He builds an altar and begins to offer sacrifices. Uh, and then we saw um, Noah's sin, if you will. Noah, well, I mean, it wasn't his only sin. But Noah's sin that is recorded here, his, his um, failure in the vineyard, um, his, you know, his, he, hey, he built a vineyard. And he enjoyed a little bit too much of the fruit of the, wine, of the vine, right? And he became a little drunk. And, you know, we saw the incident with his sons, how Ham uh, comes in and disrespects his father by, in a sense, mocking him, um, calling his sons to come and, and see. And, of course, Shem and Japheth, they show themselves to have respect for their father and they cover his nakedness. Again, nakedness being associated with shame and sin, We've seen that so far uh, in Genesis. And then we saw that kind of weird cursing at the end where uh, Noah doesn't curse Ham directly. It's more of a prophetic statement, if you will. Uh, and he curses Canaan. So Ham, being the youngest of Noah, curses, in a sense, his youngest. And, and part of this, again, it's prophetic because what's going to happen is, again, if you remember how Genesis is structured, what its, what its purpose is, it's to give the people of Israel sort of their background, their history, uh, things that they may not have known or may not have you know, fully in mind as they come to the promised land. Uh, they've been 400 years in slavery in Egypt, right? So, I mean, they're 400 years removed from the, the events of this book, at least the most of this book, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're 400 years removed from that. So we are talking many generations. Um, many of them may not know. I mean, they may know the names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they know, probably don't know a lot of the stories. So God, in a sense, reveals this to Moses, this prehistory of, of the people of God and, and the world that was before they came. And the people they're going to dispossess are the Canaanites, are the sons of Ham, if you will. And... Uh, and that's also a reason why we're going to see here in, in this passage, Genesis 10 focuses most of its attention on the descendants of Ham. Because these are the very, these are the very people that the Israelites are going to come and they're going to kick out of the land when they cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, beginning with Jericho and so on. But that last section ends the, the story or the generations of Noah, if you will. Now as we head into Genesis 10, 
we see again that this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. So we're moving into a new chapter, a new section. It's going to take us from uh, chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 26. Um, It's going to show how the earth was populated after the flood. It's going to show how the earth was divided after the flood. And it's going to show the line from Shem all the way down to Abram. So it's going to make that connection. So, you know, think of how Genesis flows in the first 11 chapters. You've got narrative, and then you've got these genealogies that kind of, in a sense, speed the narrative along. They kind of fast forward through a bunch of generations to get to important figures. Because the first 11 chapters cover, what, about 2,500 years minimal of history? Uh, probably more. Um, and, and you've got this uh, connection between from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Shem, from Shem to Abram. That line is going through, and, and uh, that's what we're going to see here. But really, this chapter... Now, this, this is, I, I didn't find this anywhere else. I came up with this on my own. This, this next chapter here, not just 10, but I'm talking about this next generations, is multiplication and division. Okay? Multiplication and division. The people multiply, they fill the earth, but then they're going to be divided. Right? That's what's going to happen in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. They're going to be divided. The, the people who are all gathered in one place will eventually spread out. So what you see really in chapter 10 is sort of like a postscript to what, you know, it's, 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 it's chronologically out of order. But um, I think there's, you know, there's a reason for that. But you're, the reason why these nations are spread out and divided throughout is because of what happens in the first nine verses of chapter 11 when the people are gathered at, you know, and they build Babel and God confuses the languages and spreads them out. So what you see in chapter 10 really is, a, is, a, is the aftermath of what you see in the beginning of chapter 11. In fact, you know, there's a hint of that where you see in verse 25 that this person, Eber, one of the sons of Shem, uh, to him was born Peleg. And it says, for in his days the earth was divided. And his name, it's a play on words. It can, you know, it comes, it's derived from the word that you would get division from. Um, so anyway... This next chapter, this genealogy of the sons of Noah, you're going to see multiplication and division. So tonight's lesson really is the multiplication part. Now, I don't know, there, was, there was an old movie. It was the birth of a nation, right? It was, I believe it was a silent movie. Um, and I'm calling this lesson the birth of the nations. So um, not a terribly original title there, but <laughs> um, the birth of the nations. But that's exactly what you see here. This, ta- this chapter is often referred to as the table of nations. In fact, on the back of your, well, I don't have it. I, I probably need to get one for myself. But, uh, oh, thank you. On the back of your handout is a map. Um, and if you have a, a, a good Bible with maps in the back or a study Bible with maps in the back, or maybe your study Bible has this map in the text itself, you will have a map like this. Maybe not exactly this, but like this. And, you know, in fact, on the, on the back of the handout, you see there in the little box in the middle there, the table of nations. Now, unfortunately, this is in color, and I don't have a color printer. So, but you could see where, you know, you could see the names Ham, Shem, Japheth. That's, in a sense, where the descendants of the three sons end up migrating to. The area of Ham is, at least on my map, was colored green. The area for Shem was colored yellow, and the area for Japheth was colored red. Now, you're going to see there's going to be some, uh, you know, it's not perfectly like all Japheth goes up there. Some of Japheth is in other places. Same thing with Ham, same thing with Shem. But the point of the matter is that what you see here, this table of nations, is the result of the post-flood multiplication of the, of the peoples, right? What did, what did God tell Moses, or Noah when he got, got off the ark? He blessed him and said, be fruitful and multiply. And that's exactly what they did. They were fruitful and multiply. We're going to see the 
effects of that. Thank you for letting me use your map. You can always count on your wife to help you out when. <laughs> but my theme for tonight is God shows himself gracious as the sons of Noah repopulate the earth. So we're going to look at it uh, in five parts. Um, parts one and five are somewhat brief. Uh, and then we'll focus mostly, probably, on part three, the sons of Ham, and then the sons of Shem a little bit. But the first verse sort of serves as a, as a setting the table, if you will. So here we see the genealogy of the sons of Noah in verse one, and that's what the passage begins. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them. So it begins with that, again, that familiar phrase, Toledot, these are the, this is the genealogy. Some translations will say this is the generation or these are the generations of. It's that same Hebrew word, Toledot, which again is indicating it's, it's the word that Moses uses to break down um, Genesis into parts, a new phase in the story. In fact, five of the Toledotes occur in the first 11 chapters. So that's kind of interesting because, again, it's you know, such a small part of the book, but it, it covers the, the largest span of time. So it's a new chapter underway. Uh, after learning the story of Noah and the flood, we now uh, consider the post-Diluvian world or the post-flood world. This is the world now after the flood. If you remember when we looked at the flood, this is... In, a, in effect, it's a new world. It's a new creation. Judgment came and wiped out what was there before. Not only did it wipe out all of the human race except for Noah and his family, most of the animals except what was on the ark, but it also changed the geology of the world. The world was more than likely one large continent because that's how it it appears in Genesis 1 where God said, let dry land appear and let the waters uh, recede. Uh, so it was one continent, but then after, as an effect of the flood, the continents would have broken apart. And they, you, know, you, you will pretty much get the kind of world that we see now, for the most part, uh, geologically speaking. Um, so now they come off the ark and they start to populate this new creation with the new humanity. Now, it's, it's not like the new creation that we see at the end of the Bible. It's not the hum, new humanity that we see at the end of the Bible because that's a perfect creation. It is a sinless creation. The new humanity will be a glorified humanity. When I say new, I'm just saying because there's no humans except for what came off the ark, okay? Uh, and this world, in a sense, is new, as we'll see. And it's not going to be very uh, long before you see that just as it was before the flood, the post-Diluvian world is going to be filled with the broken image of God. Sin is still going to fill the world, but God has a plan moving along here. So we've got this new creation, new humanity, and again we're given the names of Noah's sons in the traditional order that we're used to, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Uh, these are the same three guys we've seen all throughout uh, the, the previous section. And we see that sons were born to them after the flood. So God told them to be fruitful and multiply. And as I said, that's exactly what they did. They began to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth just as God had commanded them, just as God had blessed them. Now, as I said, this passage is often referred to as the table of nations. And one of the reasons for that is there's, there's, a, there's a repeating occurrence of words that you see in verse 5, in verse 20, and in verse 31. You look at verse 5, um, we'll get this, to this again, but from these, that is the sons of Japheth, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And look again at verse 20. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Then verse 31, these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and according to their nations. So you see they're repeated three times, the words lands, 
languages, families, nations, lands, erets, the ground, the earth, their, 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 their lands, their languages, the lashon, uh, the, the tongues. Families could also refer to clans. Uh, and then nations, the goy, that's, that's the word for nations or Gentiles. Uh, it can be either one. But these, as, as these three sons bear children and they can, their families grow, they start to form into clans, families, nations. They migrate, or at least they eventually will after Genesis 11. They will migrate. They will have their own tongues. Um, it's interesting because even to this day, uh, secular scientists do not understand fully where languages come from, the birth and, and origin of languages. Well, it comes from God, who, confused, who not only uh, created language, but also created the languages. But from these languages, you're going to see the, the, the vast array of languages that we know today come from more than likely these whatever few you know, number that they were broken into. But lands, languages, families, nations. And this passage is structured to show, and the reason, again, why they start with Japheth, it's sort of move, it starts at the most remote and begins to move in closer to, you know, the promised land, you know, the, 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 the seed of promise or the line of promise. So it'll start with Japheth, who represents, as we'll see in a moment, the Gentiles. Then it goes to Ham, who's, you know, his, his area kind of surrounds the, uh, the promise, you know, the, the people of promise, and then ends with Shem, because Shem is the line of promise. Shem is the one through whom um, the line that started with Seth will continue through Shem to Eber to Abraham. So it, it saves Shem for last. But that's how the structure is, from the most remote nations, then the surrounding nations, and then the nations that descend from Shem himself. Now, again, this is still primeval history. Okay, this is still, you know, we're not even right up to the time of Abraham yet. We're still generations away from Abraham or Abram, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, I think Abram is circa 2250 or so BC, give or take. I could be off on that. I, I didn't look, I'm just kind of I'm pulling that number from memory. So if anyone's got a study Bible that might say something about that, I think it was around 2250, 2200 B.C. But we're still centuries away from that. We're still generations away from that. This is still primeval history. It's still showing the people of God what this world was like before their forefathers were um, in, in, on the scene. Yeah, okay. Yeah, give or take. I was, like I said, when you're talking these time frames, a couple hundred years is, you know, is, I mean, for us, it's, it's, a, it's a huge span of time, but. What's that? Did he? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, moving on now to uh, our second point. So we have the genealogy of the sons of Noah, the earth uh, populated. They come from the three sons. First, then we're going to look now at Japheth. He he takes up verses two through five. The first part deals with Japheth. Japheth, um, at least, has here named. Seven sons that are named and seven grandsons that are named. All in all, there is, uh, if you count the names, there are 70 names in here. Now, some people like to try to make significances because, you know, how many people came out of uh, Canaan into Egypt at the end of Genesis? 70 people, right? Jacob and his family, there were 70. Um, if you count the names, there's going to be 70 in here. 14 of them are related to Japheth. He has seven sons and then seven grandsons. Now, here of his sons, we see in verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Those are his seven sons. Um, now, of those sons, only two of them are people that we... Um, I'm not sure what I meant when I said that. 
trying to decipher my own notes here. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I think that's what I meant to say. I put Jave in there. It's, that's not true. Magog and Gomer we hear of. Uh, we read of only two of the descendants of, of Japheth, Magog and Gomer, in other places in Scripture. Uh, these names are repeated um, in First Chronicles chapter one, verses five through seven. And First Chronicles is just um, you know, it's it's a list of names um, that begin that book. Um, if you were to look there, um, the sons of Japheth. Verse 5 of chapter 1, 1 Chronicles, were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus, sons of Gomer. It's it's exact same names. Um, But you also read of them in Ezekiel 38. So you might want to turn there to Ezekiel 38. Just going to look at the first six verses. In Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togomar, and from the far north and all its troops, many peoples are with you. So we see those names uh, there as well. Um, so going back to chapter 11 or 10 I should say we see these names repeated in 1 Chronicles which is just a, kind of a re- repetition of, of a lot of what you see here 1 Chronicles is written post-exile it's written to the people who come out of the Babylonian exile in a sense it's written to sort of remind them of who they are S- similar to what Genesis is but we're talking about people coming out of the exile here at this point but then you get these names mentioned again in Ezekiel 38, and that's prophetic in the sense of where there uh, God through the prophet Ezekiel is saying to prophesy to these nations that he's going to draw them. This is a drawing in of the Gentile nations for that final battle because we see this name again, Gog and Magog, in the book of Revelation in chapter 20 in that final battle as, as the nations are drawn uh, after the millennium. They're drawn... Uh, to the final battle where, um, it, again, of course, you know, the return of Christ comes, he speaks a word, and they all are slain. But we see these names again. Now, some of these names we can try to connect with actual uh, nations that existed at least in Bible times and maybe even exist to today. Uh, may die, that's, that's typically, that's the word in Hebrew that is used to speak of the Median people, the Persians and the Medes. Uh, Javan is the Hebrew word for Greece. Um, some of the other ones, uh, Katim is Cyprus. Uh, Tarshish, we know of Tarshish. When you, you know, if you read Jonah, where does he go when God tells him to go to Nineveh? He goes the opposite direction. He goes to Tarshish, right? Which is the, uh, you know, that's east. That's toward the, the Great Sea. Um, you know, and if you were to look on the map on the back, which I, again, I gave back to my lovely wife, but you can see where these names are. <laughs> they're, they're up north, you know, and, and, and they spread the gamut, right? Mer, you know, uh, Persia, the, 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 the Persians and the Medes are to the far east. Uh, you know, Greece would be to the far west. Um, so these people, Japheth, again, he is the, the father of the Gentile nations, and they spread up north and east and west, and they're, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. 
And that's what we see in verse 5, right? After the list of names, the sons and the grandsons, we see there from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, according to their nations. So the sons of Japheth represent, in, in a sense, then, sort of the Indo-European people of Eurasia. You know, if you, that's kind of like the whole Europe-Asia area. They're the peoples of the north. They're the peoples north of the Promised Land. They're, they're the nations. They're the Gentiles. They're the, um, the nations. <laughs> they're the Gentile people. They're the people that are, are spread out and, and, and form what would eventually become uh, the Indo-European uh, people that we know today. What's that? Basically our ancestors, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so unless you're of Jewish extract, um, these would be our people, okay? We come from Japheth. Um, now if you remember back in chapter 9, verse 27, uh, when after God curses Ham, or after Noah pronounces the curse on Ham, he says in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be a servant. Verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth. May he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. God blesses Japheth, right? Because Japheth, along with Shem, showed respect to Noah. Uh, and Japheth was enlarged, right? I mean, think of the vast number of peoples uh, make up the Indo-European peoples. And here we will see eventually they will dwell in the tents of Shem. They will find blessing as they come to the Lord, as they come to the one through whom the promise comes. Japheth is the progenitor of the Gentile nations, and Shem is the progenitor of the people of promise. In fact, if you will, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a preview of what we will be looking at when we get back to Ephesians. But Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse uh, well, 13 and 14, but I want to look at um, no, 13 and 14 is good enough. Paul in Ephesians, of course, is speaking to a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles. We get that hints of that throughout earlier in the chapters where he says us and you um, in reference to the Gentiles. And, and when he gets to chapter 2, he's talking about how those who were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, how they come to faith, and they come to faith as God makes them alive in Christ, right? He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were under the authority of the prince of the power of the air. You walked in his ways, but God, verse 4 of chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you made you alive in Christ, raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places. By grace, you've been saved. And then he talks about uh, how we are his workmanship, verse 10. And then when you get to verse 13, uh, he talks about, first in verses 11 and 12, he talks about the people who are the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, right? Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, that would have been an insult, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what the Gentile nations were. They were without the covenants, they were without hope, they were without Christ, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, they were not naturally part of the God of people. They had to come in and be proselytes. They had to uh, undergo the process of becoming Jewish in order to become part of the people of God. But then in verse 13 he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, who are far off, the Gentiles, they have been brought in. They've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ himself, is our peace 
who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That's the promise to the Gentiles. That's, that's a promise that the Gentiles will be included. They will dwell in the tents of Shem. They will find blessing, but only in the tents of Shem. They will not find blessing anywhere else in this world. They will not find blessing any other way, but except through the God of Shem, which is Yahweh, which is the God of creation. But again, Japheth, the progenitor of the Gentiles. Now let's look next, verses 6 through 20, the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham. As I said, this next portion from verses 6 through 20 is the largest section. It's the largest portion of chapter 10. And here we see Ham is recorded as having four sons, Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, which is really just another way of saying probably Ethiopia, uh, and then Canaan. So Cush would be, or maybe Cush is Ethiopia, Put is Libya. I forget, I, I, I have it here. Cush is Ethiopia, Put is Libya. Okay, I had it right, okay. <laughs> I actually put this one in my notes. There you go. Um, Mitzrayim is just the Hebrew word for Egypt. So when you see Mitzrayim, that's Egypt. Cush would be Ethiopia, so that would be like the sub-Saharan parts, southern, you know, south of the, the Nile region. Uh, Put would be to the west, that's Libya. And, of course, Canaan, that's up in the Promised Land. So the, the, the descendants of Ham uh, migrate to Africa, the middle part of Africa, and along that fertile crescent uh, where the Promised Land is. Those... Those are primarily where uh, the sons of Ham end up migrating. And as we're going to see as we move along through the book of Genesis, the sons of Ham form many of the enemies of God's people, right? I mean, these are all the people that have, in one way, shape, or form, uh, oppressed the people of God. Egypt, uh, as we're about to see uh, in a moment, Nimrod, what does he do? Well, he's a great warrior, a great conqueror, a great empire builder who builds not, who begins not only uh, what would eventually become the kingdom of Babylon, but also the kingdom of the Assyrians. Two nations that are very prominent in Israel's history because Assyria wiped out and conquered the northern kingdom. Babylon finished the job and ended up conquering not only the Assyrian empire, but the southern kingdom as well. Uh, this is, of course, much later on in the Old Testament. But here you see, uh, as, um, the, you know, as Moses is revealing this, as he's getting this from God, he is, he's focusing his attention on the people that the Israelites are about to dispossess. So he, he focuses here. And again, we see these sons of Ham form um, many of the enemies of God's people. Now, in verses 8 through 12, we're given sort of a little bit of an extended narrative on this, uh, this person named Nimrod. Cush, uh, so one of the sons of Ham, so Nimrod would be Ham's grandson and Noah's great-grandson, begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. That word mighty, Gabor, it's... Can, can refer to someone who is worthy, someone who is wealthy, someone who is mighty, someone who is powerful, someone who is strong. He was a mighty one on the earth. Uh, his name is believed to have uh, been derived from the Hebrew word to rebel. Uh, Nimrod is an empire builder. He is a man of war. Uh, this idea of a hunter, he's not like a big game hunter, right? He's not going to sub-Saharan Africa and hunting elephants and rhinoceroses. He's hunting man. He is a warrior. He is an empire builder. He is a conqueror. Uh, he is linked to all of the great empires of the ancient world. Babylon, Assyria, Mesopotamia. He built the first great cities we see here. Babel, Nineveh. Again, these are you know, Nineveh and, and, and Babel. We, these are cities we know. These are cities we've heard of. These are cities we see throughout the Old Testament. So he built the great empires of the ancient world. Uh, he built the great cities. And like many men of old, Nimrod is more than likely 
has passed on into a lot of legends that you see. Some commentators say that he was remembered in legends uh, almost attaining a demigod status. Some say that he is associated with the god Marduk. Some say Osiris. Some say Shiva. So there you've got the Babylonian gods, the Egyptian gods, the Indian gods, right? Right, it all started... Yeah, yeah. So he attains almost a demigod status. He, he is linked to a lot of these uh, figures that you see in, in uh, ancient myths. So we see here this Nimrod, this great warrior, this great hunter, this great man of war who is an empire builder. And then moving on in verses 13 and 14, we see here uh, the sons of Mitzram, the sons of Egypt. And you notice there, Mitzram begot Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, again, it's a hyphenated one here, uh, Naphtahim, uh, Pathrashim, and um, Kalashim, from whom came the Philistines. That's a name we should know, right? What are, who are the Philistines, right? They're ancient enemies of God's people, right? Particularly during the time of the judges, during the time of Joshua, during the time of the kings. They are a constant thorn in the side of Israel. Uh, they are remnants of the people they should have drove out of the promised land, but because they didn't, because they failed to do so, what did God say to them? He said, they're going to be thorns in your side. They're going to draw you away from uh, true worship. They're going to cause you to worship their gods. They're going to marry your sons, and your sons are going to marry their daughters, and so on and so forth. But here we see the Canaanites related, in a sense, to uh, the, the, the progenitor of the Egyptian people. Uh, then in, finally, in verses 15 through 19, we see the sons of Canaan. The sons of Canaan. Uh, who was uh, Ham's uh, youngest son. These are all the ites, okay? <laughs> These are all the ites. You know, the Girgashites, the, uh, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Termites, the Parasites, all the ites, okay? All the ites are here. Um, and these are the people that the Israelites are about to expel from the Promised Land. Of course, now remember, Canaan, it was, that was the one whom Noah cursed, Cursed be Canaan, right? They are the people that they're about to dispossess. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, there the Lord says to Moses, When the Lord your God brings you into the land into which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, uh, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater, greater and mightier than you are. So these are all of the Canaanites. These are the people that will uh, the, the Israelites will draw, uh, drive out. These are the ones that God will cause to, uh, will, will put fear into their hearts when they cross over into the Jordan. These are the people, because of their failure <clears throat> to be driven out, will be thorns in their sides. Uh, the Jebusite, uh, those are the people who will eventually inhabit and live in Jerusalem. And they're one of the last ones to be cast out when David... Uh, is uh, consolidating the throne, he eventually goes in in 2 Samuel and drives the Jebusites out of Jerusalem, and that's where he sets up his capital. Uh, again, all the other uh, ites, the Hivites, uh, they were in, or the Hittites, they were an ancient uh, kingdom. Uh, they're, they're derived from that name there in verse 15, Heth. Um, it was at one time believed that the, Hitt the Hittites didn't exist until they did. <laughs> And then they're like, oops, <laughs> maybe we were wrong about that. <laughs> um, but then we see the same conclusion in verse 20 that we saw in verse 5. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, according to their lands, according to their nations. Again, when, when uh, Babel occurs and the nations and the languages are confused and they're driven out, the descendants of Ham will, from that area, move south and west and move toward um, you know, the, the, you know, that fertile crescent along the, uh, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean and into Africa. And finally, in verses, well, not finally, I've got one more point after this, but, 
of the three sons. Then we see the sons of Shem last in verses 21 to 31. Moses saves Shem for last, even though he's the firstborn. This is the chosen line. This is the line through which the seed of the woman is uh, going to move through. Uh, we see in verse 21, and children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. Now, Eber is not one of Shem's direct sons. He's a couple of generations after that. You, you just want to flip over to chapter 11, verse 15. Well, verse 14. Uh, this is the genealogy of Shem. Uh, we see Shem begot Arphaxad, then Arphaxad begot Selah, and Selah begot uh, uh, Eber, right? So, grandson of Shem. Why is Eber mentioned? Why is he given prominence here? Well, again, this is one of those things where the word Eber or Eber is believed to be the word from which the word Hebrew is derived from, Okay. The, the word Hebrews derived from. He's the father of the children of Eber. Or he's the father of the Hebrew people. Now we'll see Eber again when we look at uh, the genealogy of Shem in Genesis 11. But this is the line of promise. It is Eber through whom the line of promise will go. We're seeing here a bunch of Shem's sons, but it is not all of them that are part of the promised line. It's only the one that goes will eventually go through Eber. And then, of course, Shem's descendants, if you, again, if you want to flip over on the back to that map, they're going to populate most of the Arabian Peninsula. All right, So the Shemites, or the Semites, will not only comprise the people of Israel, but will also comprise most of the Arabian people. Okay, So most of the people in that Arabian Peninsula. And then after you see these names... Uh, a bunch of names here. Then in verse uh, 31, we're told here, these were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to their nations. So just uh, another point of interest in verse 25, we see that name Peleg. If you remember, I mentioned earlier, uh, he was the one who would have been alive during the time of Babel, and it was in his days the earth was divided an allusion to the Babel incident, which we will look at, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But these are the, the sons of Shem. They, they are the line of promise. This is the line through whom the promise will come. And in a sense, you know, what we're seeing here is through the Noahic covenant, through the covenant that God makes with Noah to preserve uh, the world until the end, uh, God is, through this, working his plan through. The plan that he promised in Genesis 3.15 is working its way through. It's going to come through Shem. It's going to come through Eber. And it's going to eventually end up in Abraham. And then we'll see Isaac and Jacob. And then the people of Israel. And then verse 32 is really just a sort of a postscript on all of this. It sums up the chapter. The families of the sons of Noah. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So what we're seeing here, in a sense, it's just, it, like I said, it's the birth of the nations. We're going to see nations arise, kingdoms arise, empires arise, conquerors arise. And they're going to form primarily because of these languages being confused. So you're going to see clans and Nations and languages and lands separate and form nations, and then these nations will conflict and go on and forth. But this passage concludes by telling us the birth of the nations comes from the sons of Noah. Every person on this planet, all 8 billion people, are descendants of Noah. All the people who have lived from Noah until now are descendants of Noah. We are all part of one big family in a sense, okay? Uh, our line would mostly come through Japheth, but you've got others that would come through Ham and through Shem. And the plan to be fruitful and multiply will be accomplished. But as I mentioned before, unfortunately, it will be 
a filling of the earth with a corrupted and divided people. So as we bring this to a close, the world that we see today comes from the progeny of these three sons of Noah. Now, now people are not going to like that. They're not going to like to hear that. They're going to they're scoff and laugh at that. And, but what other options do you have? What other options are there, right? You know, we, des- we descend from apes. We descend from primates. No, everyone comes from the common ancestry of Noah and eventually back to Adam. Unfortunately, as I said, this broken image that Adam uh, was, was corrupted, his, his image was corrupted, that image he passes on to his sons, Seth and so on, that broken image continues. It is inherited from Adam to Noah to Shem to us. But we're going to see that these nations that are formed here, the birth of these nations, these are nations that God is in control of, right? He is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. If you remember from Daniel, when we looked at Daniel uh, some time ago, um, in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of the statue, right? He uh, has this dream of a large idol, a large statue that has a head of gold, a chest of silver, a loins of copper or bronze, and legs of iron, and then the feet end up with iron mixed with clay. And Nebuchadnezzar is rightly frightened by this. He's confused by it. He doesn't know what to make of it. He calls all of his soothsayers, all of his magicians, to interpret the dream. They can't interpret the dream. In fact, they, don't, they can't even interpret it because they haven't heard it. Nebuchadnezzar won't even tell them the dream because he knows that they're fakes. He's like, you've got to tell me the dream first and then interpret it. And they're like, no one's been able to do that. No one can do that. And then you find out, of course, Daniel can. And then Daniel tells him, it's like, you, O king, are the head of gold. Babylon is the head of gold. And then is going to come after you, or nations are going to come after you, kingdoms that will be stronger in their strength, but less illustrious in their glory and their might. No one will match your kingdom. They may get stronger, but they're also going to be divided, too. More and more divided as you go down uh, the statue. But then, you know, the, as you know, the end of that vision that Daniel or that Nebuchadnezzar has, he has a, a part of a vision is that a rock that was formed without hands strikes at the foot of the statue and crushes it all. And that rock, of course, is the kingdom of God, the son of man who will crush the nations. But as Daniel is interpreting this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he says in chapter 2, verse 21, that God, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's one of the themes in Daniel, uh, is that God is in sovereign control over the rise and fall of nations. Why is that one of the themes in Daniel? Because Daniel is written to a people who are in exile. They are written to a people who have been dispossessed from their land by Babylon. And they're like, we were the promised people. We were the the chosen people. How could this happen to us? Well, it happened because you're sinning. You broke the covenant. But God is in control of this. God wrote, he raised up Babylon to do this. He's going to raise up Persia to conquer Babylon, Greece to conquer Persia, so on and so forth. God is in control of all these things. It's the same thing he says in Daniel chapter 4, another time where, Nebuch- uh, where Daniel interprets a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 35, all of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Lord is in charge. He is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. That is as much true now as it was then. God is over the control over the rise and fall of nations. He is in control over what's going to happen in the United States and what's going to happen in Russia, what's going to happen in China, what's going to happen in Europe, what's going to happen wherever you want to go, anywhere in the earth. God is in control over the rise and fall of nations. Everything since the flood has been progressing 
because of the plan of God has been progressing because God allows it to happen because of the Noahic covenant and is progressing because God had a plan to redeem the world through Jesus Christ, his son. Now, as we'll see later, uh, when we see in chapter 12, of course, you know, when God promises to Abraham, he says, all the nations shall be blessed through you. You remember earlier we talked about um, how Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. You will please turn to Acts chapter 17. Because the nations of the earth shall be blessed through Abram, who is the descendant of Shem and the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Um, I love the way Matthew's gospel starts. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So right off the bat, Matthew is trying to show you that this one whom we call the Messiah, this one whom we call the chosen one, is the direct descendant of two of the greatest figures in Jewish history, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and David, the great king. So the gospel comes to the nations because Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. But in Acts chapter 17, I'm going to be looking at verses 22 to 31. If you know the book of Acts, this is Paul on his second missionary journey. He had gone to Philippi, and then he started working his way down uh, the Greek, you know, into the Greek peninsula. Got to Corinth, was kicked out of, you know, eventually left Corinth and went to Athens. And he's at Athens. And when he's there, he notices that the city is, is steeped in pagan paganism, in false gods, false worship. He walks and he sees all of these statues dedicated to all of these gods. And there's one god, one statue there that says to the unknown god. Uh, I told this in the men's group when we looked at the book of Acts. This is the CYA statue. All right, if you know what CYA means, then you know what I'm talking about. It's the one that says, in case we missed one, we're going to just have a statue with no name on it, and whatever god we missed, that's your statue. We're sorry we offended you, whatever the case may be. Paul comes to this pagan Gentile city. Remember, one of the sons of Japheth, Javan, the Greek people. There, these are these would be the very, you know, remote descendants of that son of, of of Japheth. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, verse twenty-two of chapter seventeen, and said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription." to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell, on all the face of the earth. That one blood would be Noah, of course. Well, Adam, but then through Noah. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Remember, God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. Verse 27, so they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. This is the gospel. This is the gospel presented to a Gentile nation, a descendant of Japheth, one who will dwell in the tents of Shem. It is presented to them in a way that they would understand it. Paul does not mention the scriptures once. 
right? When he, when he preaches to Jewish people, he's always referring to the scriptures. The scriptures say, the scriptures say, because they know the scriptures. These people don't know the scriptures. So he refers to, you're religious. Why are you religious? Because you know there's a God, you know you ought to worship him, but you don't know who he is. I'm going to tell you who he is. He is the one who made everything. He is the one in whom you live and move and have your being. He is the one who determined the, the boundaries of all the nations. Where they would go. He is the one who has, up until this point in time, overlooked your sin, but now commands everyone everywhere to repent. Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming through the man that he has raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel being presented to the nations, to the peoples of the world, to bring them into the tents of Shem, to bring them into the, the sphere, if you will, of blessing that is ours in Christ. This is how the, you know, the nations, though they are split and they are divided as we see in Genesis 10, the kingdom of God is a kingdom which will incorporate every tribe, every tongue, every nation. What was split in the Old Testament, what was split at Babel, will, in a sense, be brought back together again. In fact, you can, you can look at Pentecost Sunday as a sort of a rewind of Babel, right? Because you have people from every nation there. And what is, what is the wondrous thing that happens on the day of Pentecost? They all hear the wondrous works of God in their own tongues, right? They hear the wondrous works of God in their own tongues. Babel is unwound, and the kingdom of God goes forth, and it incorporates all of the nations. Well, I'll stop there. Uh, next time, we're going to just look at the Tower of Babel incident. It's a little shorter passage, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9.